People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I think if there's one thing I've learned in 35 years, it's the opposite of poverty isn't wealth. The opposite of poverty is dignity. What we really yearn for as human beings is choice, opportunity, the ability to make our own decisions, the capability to participate, interact, contribute, and feel valued by society. And that's what's missing right now for too many people. That's Jacqueline Novogratz. She's the founder and CEO of Acumen. That's a nonprofit she created out of her firsthand experience of the shortcomings of conventional aid organizations. By investing in and supporting entrepreneurs, Acumen has brought healthcare, education, housing, agriculture, and above all, Jacqueline argues, dignity to hundreds of millions of low-income people around the world. This is so great to be talking with you today. I'm, I'm so impressed by your work. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. You can't even know. <laughs> well, that's great. Your new book, The Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, it is such a, a helpful handbook for people who want to do good in the world. Because there's so many wrong turns you can take. You can can want to do good and wind up not doing such a great amount of good as you wished you had. Yeah. um, It it kind of goes back, Alan, to my mother as a a young girl always telling me that good intentions lead the path to hell. And I didn't understand (laughs) that until a little bit later in my life when I saw how so much money not only uh, can be wasted but can actually do harm. You know, one of the things I think I've observed, but uh, you've you've observed so much more than me on this front, but one of the things I think I've observed is that we take a wrong turn when we don't listen to what they really need and want, the people we're trying to help, and we decide for them what they want. Do you think that's a major problem? I think this is one of the most major problems. The, the reason I, I started my organization in the first place is that I'd worked on Wall Street um, and seen how markets actually do listen to customers, except not poor customers, because they can overlook them or they exploit them. And on the other hand, when I moved to Rwanda in the early 1980s to start a bank for women, all around me was the aid game, which didn't listen thought they thought we knew what low-income people needed and um, too often gave them exactly what they did not need, want, or value. And um, 
And that ultimately ends up creating dependency. And really what we should be after as a world is dignity. I think if there's one thing I've learned in 35 years, it's the opposite of poverty isn't wealth. The opposite of poverty is dignity. And that comes mm, with listening. That's such an interesting idea. Your redefinition of poverty is so interesting. Tell me more about that. So if I just give you a little a bit of income, but no capability to contribute, to interact, um, what have I really done? Um, giving you a piece of dignity and money matters. But what we really yearn for as human beings is choice, opportunity, mm. the ability to make our own decisions. And, um, and that comes with having access, having the capability of using that access. And so even opportunity isn't enough. It's got to be opportunity in ways that give other people the capability to participate, interact, contribute, and feel valued by society. And that's what's missing right now. Uh, for too many people. What made you leave Wall Street? What Was there a moment of inspiration where you said, I, I, I shouldn't be on Wall Street, I should be in West Africa? <laughs> Definitely didn't say <laughs> West Africa as my next immediate point. But um, yeah, sure. I, it, was, it was in Brazil. It was during the financial crisis of the early 80s. Um, I was analyzing all of these loans that were made to elites we were writing off hundreds of millions of dollars. Those loans should never have been made. And yet I would go into the favelas, the low-income areas of Rio, on the weekends, and I'd see so much vitality, so much work. And I innocently went to my boss um, with the idea that maybe we could start a lending program within the bank uh, to lend to the people in the favelas. And, and I honestly thought we might get have a better chance of getting our money back um, and do something for Brazil. Right. He literally gave me a book um, called The Innocent Anthropologist. Um, and that's when I knew uh, the bank was no longer for me. Uh, I tried to get myself back to Brazil and that wasn't in the cards. And so um, by hook or by crook, I wanted to try to see if you could build banking for low-income people. And I had heard about the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. Mohammed Yunus, who had started the Grameen Bank. He was a real inspiration. But interestingly, it seems that you, at least now, you work on a larger scale than, than Mohammed Yunus did. Mohammed Yunus, as I remember when I met him 20 years ago, was uh, financing women who needed a push cart for a small business or to own the only cell phone in the village so people would buy it phone time from her. It's very small businesses, but which did in fact give them dignity and, and a profitable business. But you seem to be starting bigger businesses with, That's right. with these well, folks. But as a, in my 20s, when I went to Rwanda, I started a microfinance bank very much based on the Grameen model. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I had another eureka moment when um, I realized that while we were helping women improve their business. Very few were actually entrepreneurs who were creating jobs. And so I um, simultaneously started this little bakery to think, well, maybe I could help create jobs. And indeed, I could. But it was a very different model. And so um, I ultimately left Rwanda with this idea that longer term, I wanted to use the tools of investment to build companies that solve problems and might provide jobs as well. Um, 
little did I know just how many jobs you could provide. And so now uh, our model today, which is patient capital, we typically make between $250,000 and $1 million investments um, anywhere from 10 to 15 years that we'll stay in with the company. And now we have a, se- a series of other funds as well where we'll, we'll make up to $5 million investments. So it's a far... Um, it's a far move from microfinance, and yet it builds on those same principles that Muhammad Yunus figured out a way to make credit a human right and make it accessible to people. And um, I think what I've really been learning is how to take what we've said are human rights, like electricity and um, water and healthcare and education, and make it those um, accessible to low-income people as well, um, because for all of the the lip service, we still have a billion people with no electricity, a billion, you know, one in three people on earth with no toilet. Mm. Um, the, the numbers are still appalling. And so there's got to be a better way. And that's really been my life's work trying to find those better ways. When you were saying that you got to West Africa in the early days and the people who were trying to help weren't helping. What were they doing wrong? Um, in some ways, it was the the focus of people giving aid was purely on helping. And so I ended up at one point analyzing 200 women's groups who had received grants for income-generating activities. And and so, again, it was great intentions. But when you dug a little, what I discovered was that the expectation was that a group of 20 women would conceive of and then run a business like a water kiosk in the slum or a poultry raising com- um, little business. And one, it's really hard to raise a bit to create a business even by yourself. Doing it with 20 people, almost impossible. Mm. Two, uh, the money had to go through the district officers and so many of the district officers would demand a 10 or 20% kickback before they made the grant. So women would pay the officer. They would have a, a, a little business that had very little accountability at it. So the businesses often wouldn't work. And then when the donors would come to visit, the women would put on a show. They would buy them Fantas. And my analysis resulted in a conclusion that many of the women were actually losing money from all of this grant money that was going to them. And I could so go on and on. In a way, it sounds like giving the money and hoping for the best without being there with them and helping them prepare and helping them carry through on the tasks involved because they had to invent a business all on their own. And in a way, the investment mentality, whether you're using grant money or a straight-out investment, if you make that investment, you, 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 you make it for a longer period of time and you make a commitment to be part of solving the problem without solving the problem yourself. That puts you in a completely different uh, frame of mind. Uh, you're accompanying people. You're enabling them to build their own solutions in ways that make sense for their own communities. You're insisting on financial accountability so that at the end of the day, people have in place a system that 
provides them with more choice, more opportunity, and something that they own and can participate in. And that's the holy grail of development. Sounds like there's a contrasting scenario in your early success with mosquito nets. How did that go? Yeah, it was really the first big win at Acumen because, as I said before, I wasn't quite sure how this would all work. Uh, We had to convince every stakeholder to do things slightly differently or dramatically differently. And so um, in the early 2000s, malaria was killing over a million, uh, mostly kids around the world. Sumitomo, the Japanese manufacturing company or um, chemical company, had developed an an organic insecticide to impregnate a polyethylene-based netting um, with perithrum, which would kill the mosquitoes that carried malaria. All of the production was done in Asia, and yet 95% of malaria cases were in Africa. And so we were very new, um, but we were lucky enough to partner with UNICEF and... um, Sumitomo, and we found a an entrepreneur in Tanzania, Anusha, uh, to take this technology and build a company. Uh, big risk. We made the loan. We worked with the company, and um, and then I started to know that it was going to work the first time I visited. And I saw one machine, two women making long lasting malaria bed nets. Next time I come, four machines. Next time I come, 10 machines. A year later, a 70,000 square foot factory. Uh, two years later, 10,000 women making 30 million nets a year. Wow. Um, ultimately producing 15% of global production and proving to the world that you could manufacture as efficiently inside factories in East Africa as you could in Asia. And that there was a real opportunity for African solutions to African problems if we approached solving the problems both with our heads as well as with our hearts. And that for too long, we'd seen either all heart or all head. And it was time for a new game. And that was really, for me, the beginning of what was possible. Now, you you have helped companies start in the United States as well, right? What 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 are some of those stories? What how how different is it from helping start a company in West Africa or India? Um, the starting isn't all that different, um, quite frankly. It's an extraordinary entrepreneur um, who has what we would call the moral imagination. They've 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 immersed. They've gotten stuff that you would probably love. You know, go close to community, listen, understand who your customers are in a in a very human way and builds viable solutions. So the start's not that different. Um, longer term, as the company grows, there's more access to capital. The systems aren't as corrupt. Um, the infrastructure is much better. It's easier to hire talent. And so I'm not saying it's easy in the United States. It's brutally hard. Mm. Um, but uh, it's not like building a company in Lagos, Nigeria, uh, where you just scratch your head at the miracles that are being done. Um, one of the companies that really inspires me, and they all do with Acumen America, that I think they're setting a real standard for 
how how the world can change. It's a company called Every Table. Um, guy from Wall Street uh, learns about food deserts that in our urban centers people have no access to fresh, healthy food, and um, and that it's fully related to gout, diabetes, so many of our chronic diseases. Mm. So he starts off by building a nonprofit in Los Angeles, teaching women how to cook better and understand nutrition. And that makes some progress, but not enough. So he decides to start a, a for-profit company, an affordable, fast food, nutritious, healthy restaurant. Mm. And um, it's so valued by the people in Compton in Los Angeles that he very quickly grows it to eight restaurants. And then lockdown happens during the pandemic. First day of lockdown, Sam Polk and I would say he's very much like many of the um, Acumen America entrepreneurs. Um, he sends out a tweet and says, look, our mission is healthy food. If you need it, let us know, we'll deliver it. If you can't afford it, let us know and we'll deliver it anyway. And if mm. you're willing to pay it forward, here's a link. And And within weeks, so many people across Los Angeles had contributed that they were able to deliver ultimately, you know, hundreds of thousands of meals, increased jobs of, for people in the community. And then they partnered with government to then start bringing all this food to um, homeless shelters and other underserved communities. And, um, and I think they've delivered about 6 million meals hmm. um, since the pandemic started. And then when Black Lives Matter um, protest happened and they realized that they were now on a growth trajectory, trajectory with a new business model altogether. Um, they decided that the next move was to raise a loan fund, build an academy within every table to train their employees that were entrepreneurial and wanted to start their own franchises. Preferencing black and brown employees, um, they're now on, on track to launch 40 franchises over the next three years where they will give people who would not normally have the opportunity nor the capital to start their own franchise accompanied by every table to help them ultimately own and run a business and, 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 um, and be part of contributing in ways that really do, I think, demonstrate dignity and build new role models for all of us. These are the new profiles in Courage, if you will, that could motivate and inspire a new generation. When we come back from our break, Jacqueline Novogratz has advice for people who want to make the world a better place but don't know how to start. And she tells a wonderful story of how she first came to understand the many ways that we're connected, even to people whose lives are so different from ours. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clear and vivid. 
Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Jacqueline Novogratz. You're such a good storyteller yourself. You don't start talking about the subject in cold terms. You start with a story that's compelling in itself, but illustrates the intellectual point you want to make, including best-selling book, The Blue Sweater. The story that gave you that title is a fantastic story. It seems to me it says so much. And one of the things it says is how interconnected we are now by trade and travel and culture and all kinds of ways. Let me hear from you that that story, that blue sweater story. It's a wonderful story. Well, thank you. Um, uh, so you know, when I was a kid, I'm the eldest of seven. Uh, big family, and um, I got a, a sweater from my Uncle Ed, and it was blue. It had zebras across the front, Mount Kilimanjaro's across the chest. Wore it all the time until I was a freshman in high school, and my adolescent curves were filling out the con- the contours of the geography in new ways. And I and I believe that there's a humiliating moment in every teenage kid's life, and mine was when my high school nemesis reached called out across the the hall where all the football players were. Um, and just made a really lewd comment to me, and um, and I was just crushed. Ran home, ceremoniously dumped the sweater into the Goodwill with my mother, and I thought I'd never have to see it again. And then I fast forward literally a, a decade, and um, I was in Rwanda running through the hills of Kigali when um, I see 10 yards in front of me a little tiny boy with toothpick legs, and sure enough, he's wearing my sweater. And I um, breathe in, run up to the child, grab him by the collar, scare the bejesus out of him, turn it, and I see my name written on the tag of his sweater. <laughs> and um, the poor child ran away. Um, <laughs> you can't, can't blame him. Your first, first case of helping somebody. <laughs> my first case of helping someone. You thought I'd learned by that. But but it is truly the the... the not only the interconnectedness of our world, but how, how our action and our inaction can impact people every day. And now there's so many. I bet you have a blue sweater moment. Not like that. That's an extraordinary, because it, it contains hope and encouragement to anybody who thinks even vaguely 
what will it matter if I put a sweater in the goodwill box? Mm. But what I love about what you're doing now is helping people focus on any desire they have to do good, to, to find out. I mean, you say something that really struck home with me. I think I'm paraphrasing you. You said, don't decide on the purpose of your life. Live your way into it. Mm. That's, that's the way I found purpose. And it seems to me to be a way where you, you're connected to your roots more. You're not, you're not out on a limb. I'd be interested in how you felt found purpose. I think that's absolutely right. It comes from the inside out. And a lot of people will come to my office or, or write and, and say, I really want to change the world. I just don't know what my purpose is yet. Can you help me? And I think, well, the, the way that you absolutely will not find your purpose is if you're looking directly for your purpose. Mm. Um, tell me what makes you feel beautiful. Tell me what excites you. Tell me what you're curious about. Take a step toward that. Uh, see what that step brings you. And if you have no idea even what makes you curious or excites you, find a leader who, who does know mm. and follow that leader. You may learn that you hate what that leader does, or you may learn that this is what you want to do for the rest of your life. But if you just sit thinking about what your purpose should be, you might end up at the starting blocks and everybody else is gone. It's the same problem as, as so many people that want to keep all their options open because then at the end of the day, all they have is a whole lot of options. <laughs> and so um, when I see those people who keep that sparkle, like you, that sparkle, that excitement, that childlike curiosity, um, decade after decade after decade, it is, um, it's so often because along the way they decided to make a commitment to something much bigger than themselves. And in making that commitment, they find freedom. I think one of the things that made me light up to that statement was that that was the process that I went through. I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know what I would be spending my time on, what you could call tr trying to do good, until I realized I was able to be helpful just translating what I had learned previously in a whole other field, which was, was the theater things I learned in the theater, I realized I could use to help people communicate better. So I, I lived into it, as you said. I love that. It also, again, has shows a humility in you because um, sometimes people who come from finance will come to me and say, um, I really want to help. And I'll say, well, that's great because we really need someone to help us evaluate these companies, um, figure out the financials. And they're like, no, no, I do with that in my day job. I'd love to hold babies. I'm like, well, <laughs> <laughs> women in the slums themselves could hold the babies. <laughs> we need your skills. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it's sort of funny. <laughs> well, that's the problem of not listening first mm. and it's it's hard to listen it's hard to because you're liable to hear something you you really don't want to hear that you're not on the path to being helpful what what are the other elements what if somebody this is a practical question people are listening 
And if they're listening to this program, it's because they're interested in connecting with other people that already is on the path to wanting to make things better. What are the things that they can do to really accelerate the movement that you've been working in for 20 years and that has had such great success? Thanks. Yeah, I would say to um, start by redefining success so that they can get out of their own way and realizing that it's only when you let go of so many of the the end games, the money, power, fame game, and focus on the problems that you're solving that you um, start to find that sense of purpose, as you were saying. Mm. And, um, and the greatest actors, the greatest writers, the greatest uh, solvers of our biggest problems tend to fall into that category. The... Um, the next thing is to just start and and then and and to listen as we've been as we've been talking about i think it also requires a level of courage um moral courage if you will what do you mean by that i think too often we we see someone who has accomplished these great things and we think well i'll never be that or they're so inspirational so i'll let them do it <laughs> yeah. instead um instead of I can't do that now, but I can take this one step. And what I have seen as someone who lacked courage on a whole lot of fronts when I was young is that by practicing courage, by saying the truth to my boss early on, in, again, in ways that she could hear, mm. not just to say everything I didn't like and, and, and want her to understand me, mm. um, might me and I was shaking and holding the bottom of the chair to make sure I didn't fall off of it. Um, true story. And um, but to but to say those truths, even though your lips are trembling, and realizing that you survive it, and maybe things do change, and that will give you courage to take that next step. And again, just start. When I started Acumen, I knew that. Philanthropy, as it was working, was mostly broken. And I knew that the markets were also broken when it came to the very poor. I wasn't exactly sure as to what it would look like to put the two together. But I was sure that I was going to fight and focus and use everything in me to solve the problems. And I think the reason I could raise money was because People saw that in me. And it wasn't until um, the, our 10th year anniversary, Alan, when uh, my board chair uh, gave an impromptu speech and she said, you know, I remember when Jacqueline first asked me to become a supporter of Acumen and, and um, I was so inspired by everything she said and I made this big financial commitment and I went home and I told my husband all about her and he said, so what does she do? And, and she said, I said, you know, I don't really know. <laughs> but I believe in it. <laughs> and I think that's how change happens. You have the courage to start it. You don't fully know, but you, you do know that you're a seeker. So be a seeker. Hold yourself to account, but be a, be, be a seeker and let the work teach you what you have to do next. So along the way, you must have experienced a failure or two. <laughs> Can you think of a failure that illustrates how you were able to learn from it 
and move on and profit from the failure? Sure. There were, I, I, I now see failures in three categories, um, at least in, in my world. We made failures early on by being too enamored of technology, sometimes that we didn't fully understand, and we're too early on the innovation curve. And so I learned early on that if you didn't fully understand how that technology would play out um, in the lives of poor people, don't invest in it. So it helped us. We started to look at distribution systems rather than at at straight technology plays. Mm -hmm. There were failures of just being so early that neither were low-income markets um, nor society at large ready for what we were doing. Um, Case in point, in Pakistan, we did the first uh, health insurance program for the very, very poor. Um, Low-income people weren't at a point where they were ready to pay for something that had no tangible value in the immediate term. Um, We failed but an industry was essentially built on the knowledge um, and the assets of what we were able to build. The most painful failure, which is partially why I wrote the book, um, were the failures of investing in the wrong character. Um, investing in people where I, I really went through feelings of great betrayal, um, discovering mm-hmm. bribes or two sets of books mm-hmm. or... Um, a deep, a deeply held belief that sometimes came from their parents, that um, honor was more important than honesty, and that this was business as usual, and you wouldn't succeed unless you played the game. And so, um, I've learned a lot about assessing character, and I've learned a lot about continually renewing a commitment to character. How do you go about that? How do you judge? whether or not somebody is really good at presenting someone they're not to you when you need to know who they really are? How do you see through it? Um, In the same way that you don't directly go into purpose, you don't start by talking about the profit and loss sheet on the financial statements you start by talking about who are you? Mm. When have you failed? Um, tell me about your family. What do you love? Mm. What did you learn from your failures? And um, we don't hire anyone at my organization today unless we do a values conversation. What we does that know- mean? What is it? How do you go about that? So we have a, a, st- a manifesto at Acumen, a statement of our, our values. Um, it starts by standing with the poor, seeing potential where others see despair, um, lis- listening to voices unheard, investment as a means, not an end. So we're very clear about what our values are. And so um, it used to be that I did every values interview. I don't anymore. But we have senior people that will, at the end of an interview process of We've tested them for their skills. Are they the right fit, et cetera, et cetera. Then someone will talk to them about um, what are their values. One of those values has been t- tested. When did you not live up to your values? Mm-hmm. And if someone can't tell you when they didn't live up to your values, well, because, it's, values, because the words should be right now. This is when I'm not living up to exactly. <laughs> I'm giving you a couple of stories here. <laughs> and so... I, and, and it's amazing. 
how often people will tell you the truth. Mm. I actually think we can tell a phony from a hundred feet away if we stop long enough to listen, not just with our ears, but with all parts of ourselves. Uh. That's not to say we haven't made mistakes, nor that we won't continue to make some mistakes, but hopefully we make a lot less than we, when we did before. We're running out of time to my regret because this is so interesting. I'm, I'm so happy for you and for all of us that you've developed this way of making life better, not just for people in poverty, but for all of us, because we'll all be elevated. You know, um, the old saying that a, a rising tide lifts all boats, that's our boats too, the ones, the ones who aren't troubled. I love you for saying that. Um, all these things, that they don't tell you when you first start out. Like I said, I, I, I was sort of a, a silly young person who just wanted to go save the world and fell on my head when I first went, um, thankfully, because it taught me to be a lot more humble right from the beginning. But even then, decades later, starting Acumen, I really thought this was about bringing dignity to people who'd been left out of the system, being, bringing dignity to the overlooked and the underestimated. Um, and what I've learned is that in that process, if you really immerse yourself, if you really do it in a way that is committed to building the kinds of financially viable companies that put our, our human purpose at the center, um, that we all change. And that, that, like you said, that we get dignity. And that if there's one truth, it is that we don't get dignity as a human race until every one of us has dignity. And in doing this work, we can assure ourselves of at least a little bit more. That's great. We end our conversations with seven quick questions. And they're in a rough way about communication. Are you game? I'm game. I'll try to be short. Okay. <laughs> okay. Here's the first question. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood a psychological hack to move us more quickly from seeing the world in in-group versus out-group terms to one of cultivating deep empathy. You and me both. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> the Socratic method. Until mm -hmm. <laughs> they have no answers. <laughs> Until they have no answers. Like, really? <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> I have a really sad, strange question, but the funniest strange question was in the desert of Rajasthan, um, my train broke down, met a guy who um, had a motorcycle, he told me he would take me to Jaisalmer, this place in the desert, and um, about halfway in, middle of the desert, just the two of us and a camel, he asks me to write my name in the sand which I do. Then he asked me to write his name in the sand, which I do. And then he says, you know, in my tradition, a woman writes her name in the sand, and then a man writes his name in the sand, and then the man scoops up both the names, and then they make love. <laughs> <laughs>
Is that okay? <laughs> Is that okay? <laughs> Is that okay? Is that okay? That's the question, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's not exactly my tradition. So, do you think we could get back on the motorcycle and go back to where we came? <laughs> okay, how do you how do you stop a compulsive talker? I lean in, give them the evil eye. If it's still not working, put my hand on their arm and then finally just say, stop. Please stop. <laughs> How long does that take you usually? Uh, yeah, do you have a time limit? I think it used to take me a lot longer than it does these days. <laughs> Let's say you're at a dinner party and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person? Um, I usually just say, tell me your story. Mm. And they'll be, what? I'll be like, just tell me your story. Who are you? And... Um, and somehow, stories start unfolding. What gives you confidence? Hmm. Small victories. Small victories give me confidence and, um, and courage, because I used to hate public speaking so much. Hmm. Um, it's somewhat thematic to what you and I were talking about. Um, I finally got to a point where I realized that if I could just think of myself as an instrument, uh, an instrument of peace, an instrument of love, um, and focus on loving the audience mm. and getting myself completely out of the way, uh, then I could speak. And um, then I could be that instrument. But if I focus on performing, I was a disaster. Well, it's like what Yo-Yo Ma told me when he was out to give a concert. He's asked those people to come to a party, and he's giving them the party. He's it's I like love having that. giving prepared. them a gift. Yeah, right, right. Last question: What book changed your life? <laughs> so many books, Alan. Um, early on, the Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. He was a Brazilian anthropologist who really helped me see how so often we get it wrong by bringing our ideas of what should work to low-income communities. And Frary turned everything upside down and said, you know, if you want to teach people literacy, uh, go and, and be with them, learn about their environment, use the things in their worlds to offer them opportunity uh, where they can learn themselves. If we really want to solve problems for people with people who are different from ourselves, we need to use the, the lens of our moral imagination. It's been so great talking with you. Thank you. You're a real inspiration, and not only because it sounds good, but it works. <laughs> Thank you. And truly, you have been a hero of mine for really most of my life. <laughs> and um, and you've Thank made you. me laugh, and you've inspired me, and I've loved your love of science. And as I said, this childlike curiosity that you bring to everything is really perhaps one of the greatest gifts that you can show us all, um, the, the act of renewal and the power of staying forever young. So thank you. Thank you, and keep at it. You too. Okay. This has been clear and vivid, at least I hope so. 
My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Jacqueline Novogratz's book, The Blue Sweater, Bridging the Gap Between Rich and Poor in an Interconnected World, was first published in 2010. Her latest book is Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World. You can find out more about Acumen at acumen.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Hank Greeley, He's a well-known expert on the ethics of biomedicine, and his new book, CRISPR People, delves into the murky story of how a Chinese scientist created the world's first gene-edited babies. He thought he was going to be famous. He thought he was going to be acclaimed and win a Nobel Prize and astound the world. And he was only right in terms of astounding the world. He was wrong on everything else. To me, the worst thing he did was do an experiment on people not just on people, on embryos that were going to become babies, where the risks were enormously greater than the benefits. Hank Greeley and the tangled tale of the scientists around the world who got caught up in an experiment that, in his opinion, should never have happened. Meanwhile, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Marcella Soros Santos, she played a major role in building the camera that was used to spot a massive cosmic explosion, the first of its kind ever recorded. These events, they are really violent events. So you can imagine two objects of approximately the mass of the sun being uh, accelerated against each other with um, an incredible, incredible speed. And because of that, the neutral star material cannot hold itself together anymore. And so in the very final moments before the collision, there is a disruption of the neutron star. And that is what creates the fireworks, so to say, that we can observe. Marcellus Soros Santos and what this collision of two neutron stars revealed about the expansion of the universe. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. 
Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 